Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Economics for Rebels, the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Not too long ago, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered. This rebellion continues. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations. Conversations with and for those who are ready to act on rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Alexandra Kovesh, and you are listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. In our last episode, we have introduced Karl Polanyi's insights on social and economic transformation and its relevance to ecological transformations. At the core of Polanyi's work were the processes that drive the relationship between state and market, namely commodification and decommodification, particularly the three fictitious commodities of land, labor, and money. Understanding decommodification in the heart of the ecological crisis is of vital importance, as no ecological sustainability can be achieved when commodified in nature, and no social sustainability is possible when commodifying humans. Today's guest is Peter Kirby and Logan Stranchok, and we will talk about decommodification not just in theory, but also in practice. Peter Kirby is an author and academic at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Limerick. His latest book is called Carpolani and the Contemporary Political Crisis, Transforming Market Society in the Era of Climate Change, published by Bloomsbury in London. He's also coordinator of the Clochardon Village, Eco-Village Education and Research Programme. Logan is Environmental and Sustainability Officer at the Central European University. His research focuses on community-based sustainability transition initiatives and degrowth-inspired movements. He's one of the co-founders of Cargonomia, an urban bicycle logistics and local food distribution center in Budapest. Welcome, Peter, and welcome, Logan. Thank you, Sandra. Glad to be with you. Thanks Hello, for being with us again. Um, in our last episode, we talked about the need to transcend the market logic. Uh, this can only be done if we stop putting price tags on everything. How can we do that? What is commodification anyway? I think it starts for me by my many uh, trips to places in Latin America or in parts of Asia or the Middle East and where you go along to these very colorful markets, I mean, some of them are, are huge markets. And the experience of, of interacting with the sellers and of buying something is a social experience. I mean, it's, a, it's an experience totally different from what we're used to in the West when we go into shops and there's a price and you just hand over that amount of money and you get your good. Because what so often you do in these other markets, and it always reminds me when I read Polanyi that this is what he's talking about as a market embedded in society is you develop a relationship. It actually becomes playful fun. You begin to bargain about a price. And of course, in your mind, you realize that the, that what the impression that you're being given by this person, that you're, that you've suddenly become a, a deep bosom friend of theirs and they're giving you a, a great, a great reduction, you know, in your mind that that's not the case. They're getting a decent price. 
but the whole thing happens in a sort of an organized interaction which and they sometimes sit you down and they give you a cup of tea or something which it means you establish a relationship in doing it and and that to me is is really a profound lesson about commodification and decommodification because i think so often in the west we we think that decommodification means that you don't sell things no you can sell things we still will make things and sell things in a decommodified society it is that the fundamental i mean the difference between a commodified and a decommodified society for me and i think my, this is my reading of polanyi is that our essential needs our essential needs for food for shelter for healthcare for education for belonging for security are not dependent upon the market they're not dependent on having the money to pay for them that's the crucial difference so there will be markets people will buy and sell things things they've made themselves things that they're just um uh, uh, sellers of other people's things but our well-being our fundamental security will never be dependent upon having to pay for things and that's the crucial difference and it's very interesting in this day and age suddenly the debates on universal uh, universal basic income for example or universal basic services which has become a very lively debate not just through covid but long before covid but but especially come to the fore during covid times that that's the essence of decommodification in other words that we that we break the link between income and well-being so that i mean the idea of a bit of a of universal basic income as everybody knows is that the that the state would give everybody a basic income and so they would then choose what they want to work for of course the income would be so basic to could meet uh, only very basic needs that's part of the critique of it so anyway that that to me is the essence of of commodification because we live in such profoundly commodified societies where so much of of what we of what we do what we require uh, we do it through buying it in the marketplace we don't realize how just how extreme this is and how how in our times we've reached an extreme of commodification of vast areas of our lives that previously were done within the family were done at home were done within the community um uh, and and so we really need i think to to become much more critical of that and and carl polanyi helps us in doing that yeah the well, the idea of the commodification decommodification is a extremely complex topic but certainly wherever we are wherever we're living if we if we take a look through uh what is in our house or what is in our homes what we're surrounding ourselves with and what we're spending time working to acquire the capacity to have purchasing power for some of these items we certainly see the results of commodification and uh yeah certainly some of these negative results is is based on uh, globalization and distance and a complete disconnect with uh the true consequences of the production of products both of what they're made from where they come from and the idea that uh, the system has made it very very easy for us to take for granted the social consequences and environmental consequences of the things which seem readily available to us and we've even had uh, a bit of a scare in the last year and a half of seeing the, the fragile nature of the system as well and for especially some of the staple 
products, which we think will always just be there, uh, especially if we would think of food, are based on a very fragile system. So this complex infrastructure based on uh, distance and production in, in basically a global scale of production, where we're just taking for granted that products will all, all, always be available and in these uh, these type of shopping centers where we've come become common with purchasing these products. It's a very, very fragile system. Uh, it has the, the, the veil of, of security, but it's based on, uh, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a system which, which can collapse very easily as well. And if I try to think of decommodification uh, and try to try to not do it in a way which seems completely romanticized, well, I can of course uh, compare uh, the, the change in landscape and the change in what I see visually traveling only an hour from the city I reside in to the, to the countryside where the farm is, where I might work from time to time, where realistically, it wasn't such a long and hard to imagine time ago where most of the core essential uh, resources used, produced and consumed in the village were, were quite local products produced by uh, local craftspeople. And we're talking about uh, tools. We're talking about, of course, food, as it was an agricultural area. But we're also talking about some of the things like the dwellings that people were living in, which were quite ni nice houses. Uh, completely produced with locally available materials or, or materials that were, were sourced from somewhat in the region. And so that you don't need to, when you're starting to try to imagine decommodification and the type of exchange relationships which could be possible, you don't have to go back uh, hundreds and hundreds of years uh, and imagine some type of Stone Age scenario, people living in very simple dwellings and living agrarian lifestyles. There was complex and uh, quite dynamic uh, societies based on local production and exchange, which weren't, uh, which were, weren't existing so long ago. And if you look more into the research, which talks about the exchange economies, which still exist in rural areas uh, across the world, but certainly in Central Europe, there still is a lot of localized production and exchange, which is happening and thriving. And a big portion of people's uh, certainly sustenance and food that they're eating, which is still going on. So the a transition to, a, to a, uh, a decommodified system of exchange or local exchange, it doesn't necessarily have to come with a lot of consequence and it's not a, a completely unrealistic um, scenario. So I think um, uh, when, we're, when we're focusing on uh, decommodification, I think we also might think that, well, there's no way that complex machines can can fit into uh, society if we're truly trying to be decommodified. But I, I don't necessarily agree with this because I think some some complex machines can still be assets, especially if we're thinking about uh, transport. And I think leisure has been commodified. The idea that uh, we're living, uh, you know, we need to we need leisure is based on escaping our everyday life. So leisure for us needs to be planning a really uh, distant vacation to a completely different landscape to be able to you know, pacify the, the uh, lack of satisfaction we have with our own life. This is an idea, this is an example of, of leisure being commodified. And there is, you know, going back to the complex machine, something like uh, rail travel, which is a complex machine, but I think it can fit within a, 
uh, idea of a decommodified means of transport because it's uh, it can get you from place to place, but not necessarily at the extreme uh, resource consumption level or even the speed of something like flying, which uh, which a lot of people do regularly as a human, but it's a completely unnatural uh, rate of getting from one place to the other, sending your body through a shockwave of traveling such a, a long distance in the short time, which we don't necessarily always uh, perceive of the impacts of. So I don't think uh, decommodification and, and complex technology are completely incompatible. It's just certainly the, the way that we, we put them to, to use together. Let's first look at the problem of commodifying land. Land provides the principal basis for human livelihoods and well-being, including, of course, the supply of food, fresh water, and multiple other ecosystem services, as well as uh, biodiversity. Why is commodification of land a problem? And um, what do you think? How can we decommodify it? Well, it's only a problem because, because we have convinced ourselves that private ownership of land and the use of land primarily for, uh, for gain, for private gain, for profit making, uh, that that use over and above uses, for example, uh, of it for aesthetic purposes, or uh, more importantly, for, uh, for longer term environmental sustainability, for those sorts of purposes, uh, that um, you know, the value system that we live by gives priority to, to using land and nature as a whole for, for profit making. After all, throughout most of human history, land holding was communal. And uh, I mean, Polanyi uh, uh, in The Great Transformation in particular talks a lot about the enclosure of the commons and, and dates the beginning of the emergence of the market mechanism to the, to the enclosure of the commons. Uh, and then European colonialism uh, began to spread this around the world. Uh, I mean, the first stage of, of, of British colonialism was to to spread private land holding to my country, Ireland. And it's often said that they experimented there with the systems that then they took to the Caribbean and to North America and beyond to other parts of the world. So, uh, you know, we've had a nexus of the commodification of nature that has gained pace over the last 500 years or so, but is very different to the way in which traditionally communities uh, owned and, and tended the land. And uh, that form of communal land holding, uh, because to, to call it land ownership brings much more complex processes into play, but land holding meant that the community also was attentive to the needs of, of nature and to the needs of ensuring that nature, uh, that a balance was achieved between the way in which we exploit nature and nature's own ability to be to be able to be sustainable. So uh, I think we, we, we have really important lessons to learn if we take seriously the fact that, that, that societies that we sort of disparage and dismiss as being primitive societies had uh, very often far more balanced ways of, of, of holding land and of using land and it's now interesting, I noticed that in recent reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that they are 
now beginning to argue that we need to go back to some of the indigenous knowledge systems, particularly in their report on land a few years ago, and begin to learn the lessons of that. And they see this as, as an essential uh, dimension of our adaptation to climate change. So, uh, you know, again, Polanyi was well ahead of his time where he drew attention to the fact that that the commodification of land and of nature, he made very clear it wasn't just land, it was the whole of nature was, was profoundly destructive for human society, not just for nature, but for human society. So of course, when we bring up the topic of land, I think it's quite common to start with something like agriculture, which has a vast impact on land. And it's a really important issue, especially as we consider the changing profile of those who are still uh, left as agriculturalists, which across Europe, it's an aging population, it's a reducing number, and the ability to exploit this change that, or, or in, in more specific, the case that we have an aging farmer population, we have a lack of a next generation of people who want to take on agriculture as a means of earning a livelihood. Uh, it's making land, which may have been in the families for quite some time, uh, available or vulnerable to being uh, taken over very quickly uh, as a goal of consolidation. And we see this, the changing profile of the of the farm in, in Europe or of the farm in, in North America, which this idea of the family farm is presented, but it doesn't really exist anymore. There's a, a large number of very, very small micro farms, a very small number of middle-sized farms, and an increasing number of incredibly uh, vast farms, which you typically occupy about 75% or 80% of agricultural land. So this consolidation and concentration of ownership of agricultural land is, is certainly a, a result, resultant of this commodification of, of land in all countries as just a means of a production tool. And when you combine this with the fact that agricultural policy hasn't really uh, shifted out of that protectionist and production, productivist uh, uh, as a goal, and it, this, is, this results in a huge problem, and it doesn't really allow for big steps to be made in, in promoting uh, agroecological principles or more environmentally friendly means of production uh, at a wide scale in agriculture. It comes down to an individual decision of a farmer if they want to take what will in inherently be a risk of changing their production style. But also I think this issue of land and the commodification of land certainly has impacts outside of the rural setting. So in, in whether you're in a, in a, in a city big city, small city, suburb, we have a huge problem with the idea of, of real estate as um, you know, what is going to be the backing security in financing the state, but then also for people to uh, lean back on as the one reliable thing that they'll have, that their house, which they'll work to purchase their whole life will always keep increasing in value. And it's supported by this, uh, this, um, this uh, accompanying means of, of, of never-ending land speculation as well and this is a big problem and especially when we're talking about something like uh, reducing raw material consumption the amount of building for building's sake it really needs to be uh, inspected closer especially if we're thinking of in in the city the fact that policy supports new building as opposed to uh, 
as opposed to renovation. There's favorable tax agreements for building a new building because in the back end, it's expected that it will have a bigger economic boost because new materials are being used. While in many, many cities, almost all of the necessary infrastructure already exists and is not being used. And this has many ramifications when we're talking about social movements or, or citizen movements or community movements because access to space or while it's not necessarily land, but usable space in the urban environment is incredibly hard to come by, especially if you're an initiative which doesn't have a stable uh, financial means or ones which is, which, which is trying to maintain an autonomy from having a pressure of earning a certain amount of income to pay for a space. In most cities, walk, if you walk through the streets, you'll be passing uh, hundreds and hundreds of empty spaces which are owned by the local municipality or owned by the city with nothing happening in them, but it's incredibly difficult to access these places. So I think land access has, has big uh, implications in rural areas, but also in, in transitional areas between, between uh, the countryside and the city and certainly in cities uh, as well. Let's turn our attention to labor. Polanyi warned that uh, treating workers as commodities Selling their labor power on the market was uh, destroying the traditional organization of society. It is also clear by now that um, the way we treat labor in, in mainstream economics has a tremendous impact on why we cannot transit into more sustainable modes of operandi. So when we say uh, we can't, we can't possibly grow more or the sole aim of the economy shouldn't be to just grow more. The first term that comes to people mind is, well, employment. How are we going to, how are we going to um, handle employment problems in, in that case? So obviously what, what you're talking about in, in decommodification, decommodifying uh, land and labor, this is absolutely crucial in ecological economics terms to, to try and find our way to um, sustainability. So how would decommodification of labor help this situation? Well, I've already mentioned the debates around universal basic income, universal basic services. So that's, that's one, uh, that's one sort of universal uh, welfare mechanism that, that's being debated, which would, uh, if it were possible to do it. Now, I, I must say, I, I agree with a lot of the criticisms about the fact that were we to do it at a universal level in any of our societies, even our best, best off societies, that it would eat up more than the, than the total welfare budget and it would give people incomes that would only allow them to barely live above the poverty line. So there are, there are real difficulties about the, the, the basic proposal, but it certainly is a conceptual breakthrough in terms of moving us to, to debate the need to be able to provide a basic floor for people that then gives them greater freedom in terms of how they want to realize themselves through work. And this we mentioned in, in the last discussion, which is that essentially Polanyi is talking about much more than simply providing people with a basic income. He's talking about work as the fundamental way in which we realize ourselves. 
both in terms of our talents, but also in terms of what we give to society. So, so how we do that now becomes uh, the, the big issue, I think. I'm very struck by Amartya Sen's focus on, on people's capabilities. There's much about Amartya Sen's work that I would dis disagree with, but his, his, his definition of, of giving people, and, and here I quote him, the capability to live the kind of lives we have reason to value it is to me um, amazingly radical. And it, it is reorganizing the ways in which we organize work, giving priority to giving the freedom to people to live the kind of lives that they have reason to value. And that includes what they spend their time doing in terms of work and their contribution to the wider society. That, so that's at the essence of it, I think. And another aspect that I think is very important is uh, I'm struck by the fact that here in our eco village, and, and some people themselves say that, and it's, it's something that Karen Litvin in her book on eco villages, where she visited 14 eco villages around the world, and she makes the point that in all of them, she met people who lived very well on incomes well below the national poverty line. And, and there are people in the eco village I live in who would say the same. So if one can live in much more fully in an independent, interdependent community, then much more of the needs that in a more individualized society, one has to pay for with money are met by the fact that people take care of themselves in all sorts of ways. So exchange of services and exchange of goods. Um, and so that is going to be part of the story, I think, as well, that as we relocalize our economies, as we begin to do much more at a local level in the production of goods, in artisan production, and we find that here in our eco village, people produce uh, soaps, they produce um, jams and cheeses and wraps and, and woolen goods, etc. There's, there's an amazing richness of artisanal production that begins to emerge. Uh, and so again, all of that begins to, to decommodify labor, it seems to me. And the final part of the jigsaw, I think, and, and this is where um, uh, an aspect of our modern organization of the labor market uh, may be, if, if we had better governance, could be turned to our advantages, that the sort of fragmentation of the labor market and the fact that we've now emerging uh, far more individualized, if you like, career paths where people's lives aren't as locked into a, a, a lifelong career path as they would have been even in my generation, but certainly my parents' generation. Uh, at the moment, of course, it means that many people are thrown on the mercies of the market and very often live with great precariousness and, 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 and in, in poverty, uh, virtual poverty much of the time. Uh, perhaps that if we could, if we could find ways in which people have a fundamental floor, then these different ways that people can supplement that by bits and pieces of work, which maybe they can enjoy, maybe they do it because there's a particular thing that they want to buy at a particular time in their lives, that in other words, there's more flexibility of combining way, you don't have to become a wage slave, in other words, to, to increase your income in, in, for a short period of time, 
uh, and then maybe to go back to, to the basic floor that you had. So these are all very Polanyian, I think, in, in the ways in which we have to really radically rethink the world of work and putting that fundamental principle of Sen uh, at the heart of it, giving people the, the capacity to live the kind of lives that we have reason to value, that, that people themselves have reason to value. I think we're, we're also at a very crucial time um, if we consider the increasing cost of education and training. So if we're going to talk about uh, decommodifying labor, uh, we can't ignore the importance that access to training and education plays and the limited access if we think about society as a whole and the increasing risk that comes with pursuing uh, additional training. So if we, if we take again, well, I will make the, uh, take the example of, of the US, the incredible risk that an 18 year old takes in pursuing higher education in the US. Uh, if you take someone, the idea of, a, of an 18 year old student voluntarily indebting themselves $100,000, $200,000, $300,000, perhaps with the best societal values and intentions in mind, and finishing at the end of four years with that much debt in front of them, uh, it's incredibly difficult to take the risk to uh, take the job which you find fulfilling and meaningful. And I could speak from this uh, wholeheartedly because I, I know what it's like to live with that mountain of debt and how it influences your life afterwards. And so I think continually fighting for accessible, affordable education, while it doesn't sound like the uh, the most innovative type of campaign, it's, it's incredibly important and remains uh, integrally relevant as we go forward. And of course, connecting it to this uh, stronger social services so that people are not pursuing employment through desperation, but actually because you know they have the time, they have the security at home to be able to uh, look around for work or change jobs or uh, change from one career to the other. And I would follow this up with, especially as we move forward, the continuing career transition education and access to this and, and, and high level uh, programs for, for transitioning professionals in the future is as important as accessible uh, higher education or training programs for young students as well, because with it makes these type of transitions, which may be painful or, or uh, specifically sensitive political topics, especially if we're talking about something like energy, of giving people a great opportunity which, which doesn't have a high inherent risk involved to be trained and to learn a new trade and to, and to be able to uh, not necessarily decide what job they would take in, tra in transitioning from a, a highly carbon intensive job to another, but giving them a wide range of options with a, a good structured uh, career tr transition program. And I really believe in the, that this must be something that, that decision makers pursue because we can't, we, we, we need to empower people to make decisions that might seem a bit risky to them. And this can really spring forward uh, or springboard the this transition uh, shift from people who are embedded in in labor jobs with uh, a highly resource intensive or carbon intensive footprint to 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 less carbon in intensive types of uh, types of employment opportunities and, and i think we can't forget these basic fundamentals of, of access to education and continuing education if we expect for something like decommodified labor to be more realistic for for a greater part of the population. 
Well, the decommodification of money, um, at first, the decommodification of money seems a highly contradictory concept to grasp. Um, and also, the problem of money and capital would certainly take up another episode or, or two. But just shortly, can we discuss why the decommodification of money would be important in sustainability transitions? Absolutely vital. I mean, again, Polanyi was right. And uh, uh, like you, I had it took me quite some time to get my mind around this. Um, but money is, uh, I mean, money in, in, our, in our contemporary financial system, of course, what we're seeing is that money has become a commodity in its own right. It's not just a unit of account or, or a means of exchange. It is a commodity that we buy and sell. We buy and sell to make more money out of it, which, which is absolutely uh, nonsensical in its own right. M money isn't a good created to be for, for, uh, in that sense, uh, but um, it has become that in, in, in a highly speculative financial system where 90% of all financial flows, they say now, are, are for the purposes of speculation, namely making money out of money. So, uh, I mean, we have to get away from that. That's the first thing. Uh, another influence on me has been uh, a book that I read by a man who lives quite close to us here. He's a friend of ours in the community, Mark Boyle, moneyless man. Mark lived for, he's Irish, but he lived for a year in London without any money. And his book uh, 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 recounts this year. And he says it was the happiest year of his life. Now, so it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful book to read and, and the different ways in which he he, he's, he had very strict rules in, in terms of living without money. He didn't, you know, he didn't go around depending on people offering him free meals, etc. But the important thing, the important insight, and I remember saying to him that this to me was a, a fundamentally Polanyian insight. He says in that book that what he learned was that a society that's based upon the commodification of money, in other words, that our relationship to the the great majority of people is a relationship that's mediated through money. So just think of our lives, the number of people, particularly in our highly commodified education and healthcare systems, the number of people that we rely on uh, to, to get us through life uh, and that we relate through, through the medium of money. They provide a service or they provide a good and we pay them the charge for that. And as Mark says, we never engage with them. What passes between us is the money. There is no real engagement with one another. And just think of the number of times you go into a shop uh, and uh, you know you obviously never engage with the person that you're, that you're buying something from. You may be polite and pleasant to them. Um, and uh, he, he just, he makes the, the bigger point then that, that it is destructive of the bonds of society a society that is so dependent upon money as the glue through which we, we meet one another beyond our, our immediate families is, is a society where we're all the time stripping away the fundamental bases that allow us to think that we can depend upon one another when things get tough. And so that to me taught me an awful lot about this really core reality that Polanyi draws our attention to is uh, the commodification of money is destructive of society in the most fundamental of ways. It, it means that 
we cannot rely on one another. There is no basis for interdependence. We, we, we are, our nexus of relationships with the great majority of people is mediated through the fact that we pay them something for what they get, uh, for what we get from them or vice versa, they pay us. Um, so, so that's, I mean, I think that, that that draws our attention to the, the really vital importance of putting to the fore how we decodify money. And of course, uh, there are books out there who, who do, which do uh, lay out uh, a, a, a model for how you can, for example, bring the whole banking system into public ownership, make sure that it's under democratic control. Uh, Christian Felber talks about the fact that why can't we be this through public referenda? Uh, what is the relationship between the minimum income in society and the maximum income in society? Of course, these are completely beyond our capacity to imagine as realistic possibilities right now, but they are possible in themselves with an imaginative leap. It could be done. And why, why don't we do it? Because we conceive of the sphere of the economy as being in the hands of private entities. Why do we conceive of that? Uh, I mean, in the past, before the French Revolution, we conceived of the, of, of the political sphere being in private hands of, of inherited power through kings and lords, etc. French Revolution broke that. That we now have to break through into the economic sphere uh, and democratize the economic sphere. And all, all that is absolutely vital to, to, to decommodify money. So, I mean, there's there's a huge amount of possibilities. And in fact, it seems to me that while uh, cryptocurrencies, etc., are largely developed using a very neoliberal and individualized model, they don't have to be that. That the technology would allow us to develop cryptocurrencies can, that can be much more socially based, that can be anti-speculative, that can ensure that it's the good of the local economy that is put to the fore and such such currencies do exist so you know technology can be can be brought can be harnessed for the decommodification of money as well and again uh, you know we need to the policymakers need to, need to bring these issues to the fore yeah i think uh, peter mentioned a long list of very valid points so i'll just try, i'll be a bit shorter in this and i think uh, I don't uh, initially react to the idea of money as something that uh, uh, I need to rebel against. But I, I more so, I have trouble with the idea of, of, of debt and imposed debt. And I think the decommodification of money, we can't really start talking about decommodifying money without talking about debt and debt forgiveness. Uh, at the localized level, but certainly at a global level, especially if we're going to start talking about uh, societal transitions and uh, environmental transitions and imagining new waves, uh, new ways of reforming relationships within a society. And I think that we have a, a, a huge uh, history of exploitation, which has, which is the legacy of imposed of, of more wealthy countries, powerful countries imposing debt and a development strategy on less financially powerful countries and that lasting legacy and those who, be who benefited from who have benefited from it historically are still benefiting from it. And I could take it right down to the 
the previous example I mentioned, which is debt forgiveness for something like studying. So at an international level, the idea of debt needs to be reconsidered, and I'm a supporter of debt forgiveness in a number of cases, one more specific, those for, for students uh, who, have, who have incurred a large amount of debt studying over the years. But we need to think about this as a, at the global scale uh, as well. And the idea of, it's fascinating when you start to actually read about money and how imaginary money actually is. And you could learn a lot about debt and the history of debt if you read David Graeber's uh, 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 magnum opus on, on debt. And there's many other great texts you could read about the imaginary nature of money. Once you start digging into money and, and you could find out uh, how much, how much, um, how much can be accomplished with negative consequence just through speculation and what you can do when you have already amassed a certain amount of money and how you could spend and take risks with great consequence without any care. Uh, this certainly needs to be regimented more and, and the power relationships uh, that money allows need to be need to be addressed with, with policy for sure. You both claim that through your personal lives, the communities you live in, the projects you run, you practice decommodification. How is that possible? I think what it does for me is that it sort of demystifies this really, uh, you know, abstract concept of, of decommodification. And uh, for me, coming to live in, in this intentional community really helped me to see all sorts of possibilities that that I never saw otherwise li li living uh, in a typical way in a city. So uh, like one of the one of the strong dimensions of the community I live in is that we try to keep more and more of of the money in the community. So for example, we have a baker and we have a, 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 a we have a bread club. so we pay in advance uh, for the bread. Uh, you know, so depending on, on the family's needs. And so the baker knows before he bakes uh, that he already has much of what he bakes sold. We have an egg club, we have a mushroom club, we have a, a milk club on the same principle. All of these are local producers, small producers who have a guaranteed income as a result of this. And so uh, I, I think that there are so many of the practices that we can begin to develop in a small community that then the challenge is how do you, uh, how do you extend these to, to a wider community? Like for, we're an educational uh, NGO and uh, when people come to the eco-village they often say, well, do you expect us to set up an eco-village? And of course we say no, but there's many of the things that we do that could be done really in any, that could be done in a, in a, in a city suburb, that can be done in, in a small town. For example, we have a community farm where we grow about 50 varieties of, of, of vegetable and fruit on, I mean, effectively three or four hectares of our 22 hectares in the eco-village. And, um, and this is done through regenerating the soil and through we feed about 100 people out of what would be regarded in Ireland as a very, very tiny farm. Uh, we do it because we can regenerate the soil, we can systematically uh, produce better quality food in an organic and a biodynamic way. And I say to visitors here, uh, you know, every housing estate that built, that's built in Ireland should have some land put aside 
that serves two things. Number one is that more of the food needs of the community are produced from that land. So you can have excellent food without any carbon miles built into it. But secondly, the community, it, it creates community. People come together to tend that land. Um, so so uh, if you want to go into the, the, te the, the technical aspects of it, and I've written a little bit about this, you know, we, we, we talk about money as, as, as providing or fulfilling three functions in society. It's a unit of account, it's a means of exchange, and it's a store of value. And I think that some of the lessons of Polanyi's work on societies before the British Industrial Revolution and the monetary systems that they had are, are really re very relevant for our times, because what he found was that those three purposes of money as we know them today weren't necessarily fulfilled by the same by the same type of money. And I think, for example, in our community supported agriculture farm in our eco village, uh, we divide the unit of account and the means of exchange and the store of value. In many ways, our store of value isn't monetary at all. It is the fact that we are all the time regenerating the soil. We're able to produce better quality food from the same soil. Uh, our means of exchange is that we don't buy the food. We are members of the farm, so we pay monthly in advance for the produce that comes that month. And so we live from the produce of the different seasons uh, and we take what we need. It's not divided up into different boxes. All of these are models of different forms of both agricultural production, but also they can be the production of goods and services, which allow us to use money in a different way and to conceive of money in a different way, in a way that's more an investment in strengthening local capacities and local economies, rather than simply seeing it as going into a shop and giving our money and not thinking of where that goes. And it could be going to the far end of the earth. Certainly in our modern uh, local economies, so much of our money is sucked out in all sorts of ways and we're completely unaware of it. So that's the way in which community can really, I think, uh, act. And, and Logan was talking about education. So much of the valuable education that, that I get as a university professor living in the eco-village is from, from all the ways I learned from my neighbors of things that I, I really was completely ignorant about and that are really fundamental lessons and I don't have to pay anything for them. If I was gonna, yeah, if we're going to, if I'm gonna introspectively think about uh, decommodification, which I try to practice in my own life, I mean, of course, I have a somewhat official job or, or uh, two somewhat official jobs, one in a university, one working in a garden. But certainly, as much, uh, I try to really work hard to blend the, the, or to reduce the barrier completely between what is considered uh, work for either of those institutions, and work, one being a university, one being a garden, and work which I see having uh, social or communal benefit or having an impact in the area in which they're located. So uh, one thing that I, I try to look in the mirror and think about a lot is, is uh, the amount of my time or effort, whether it's mental or physical, and whether it's spent for something like financial benefit or for social benefit. So I see 
deep commodification of at least the time that I spend working on projects or even doing some work that sometimes there is a financial incentive for it. But for me, perhaps even more importantly, there's often a social incentive by feeling closer to the people I'm working with or by creating a good network of friends and colleagues. And this is what I tried to guide myself by. Of course, I also understand the privilege associated with this, that I can, uh, Peter gave the example of his friends living without money for a year. Of course, that takes some careful uh, organization and amount of stability to be able to do that. I can try to live with uh, not so much money, uh, or also maybe you could say that one of my philosophies for not buying, not eventually being corrupted by money is by never really having any of it, but still it takes a certain amount of security to be able to, to go forward and some sacrifices as well. But just um, for other examples, especially working with smaller organizations. So for the example of uh, Cargonomia, which is a, a self-organized collective, which was operating in Budapest, we, we lost the space which we used to occupy because of its increasing cost. It's just kind of common of what was happening in the city, a space which was once affordable for us uh, became too expensive. And then we needed to, uh, we didn't want to abandon all of our activities. So we were able to find a partnership with a similar cooperative who, because of COVID, couldn't operate its social center and had a large space where things like cargo bikes could be stored, where a box distribution point could be stored. And so instead of deciding on some sort of financial exchange, which would be beneficial for both of us, we allowed them to use some of our tools or infrastructure, which were our cargo bikes. They allowed us to, in exchange for this, to use their space. And it worked out really well for both of us. It was mutually beneficial without needing to get into uh, the more complex financial details because there wasn't really a financial exchange. And I'm, I'm very aware of alternative currency systems. And I just tried to provide a bit of perspective from uh, a small market garden. We would be very happy if the conditions surrounding our operation would make it easier for us to be able to uh, not be so reliant on accepting traditional currency for our products. But this is very difficult. And the traditional currency is still in the current time we're in and the current state we're in, very important, especially when we're thinking about providing a living wage to those who work on the farm. So while we're searching for ways constantly to demonetize or, or disconnect or, or uh, to disconnect us from this reliance on a traditional financial exchange, at the time we're in right now, it's very important. There are places where there are concentrations of uh, artisans or people building things who are collaborating together and, and the necessities of uh, a quite conscious lifestyle are becoming more readily available in a close proximity. So if we're talking about agriculture and you're working together with people who can build some of the simple low-tech tools for agriculture, or even something like uh, some of the other equipment you might need, or maybe helping to do uh, delivery. So someone's producing food, someone's helping to do doing delivery with a cargo bicycle or something like this. There are, or someone even with more complex technology, like uh, a farm exchanging uh, goods for help with developing a web shop for people who are interested in open source technologies and IT tools. These type of relationships can exist. Unfortunately, in the exact village where we're operating, we don't necessarily have this 
network of collaborators built up yet, but we hope it's something that will emerge in, in the future. So we try to, we try to input or, or swap out a financial exchange for a solidarity exchange when we can, but this process happens slowly and needs to be built up over time. I'm asking you the question I ask all my guests. What is your rebellion? First Peter and then Logan. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I've listened to your podcast and when you come to that question, I've asked myself, uh, what would my answer be? And I think uh, when I look over my life, um, I, I've worked as a secondary school teacher, I've worked as a journalist, I've worked as a, as a university professor. I think I've been from a relatively young age been guided by a sense of really trying to demask the pretensions of 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 the discourse of people around me. At times, I I feel I've made people very angry because I feel I'm uh, I'm being completely unrealistic in in the sorts of things I'm advocating. But to be honest with you, as I grow older and as society changes, I think many of those things. Uh, I've proven to be to be right. My hunch has has proven to be right. And I mean, around the issues that we're discussing today, uh, like, um, you know, I've lived through a period when my society became profoundly, I mean, it moved from being a relatively poor society on the edge of Europe. Uh, the Ireland I grew up in was one of the poorest countries uh, in Western Europe. When we joined the European Union, we were, I think, the poorest country. And then we've moved to being one of the richest countries. And it is, it is seeing in my lifetime that the, 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 how much was, was lost in all of that. And seeing the way in which really it strikes me that society is less free as a result of that. So yeah, my rebellion has been to try to ask those hard questions. Uh, and that's what I continue to do. No great pride to myself, it's just the way I'm built. and. Um, that's what's brought me to live in an eco-village, I suppose. I would, I would build on that and also say that uh, at least a simple form of rebellion, which I, I hope I can personify, is to simply not become content at some point. You could be happy. I try to uh, pursue a path which keeps me quite happy and fulfilled, but not necessarily content with my own impact or content with just uh, what has become my everyday routine. So to challenge myself more, but also to do this, not in a way which uh, warps my understanding of, of success or progress with always needing to do things bigger with a greater impact. It's more so on a personal level to constantly learn new things, work with different groups of people, uh, improve my ability to communicate. That's one way in which I, I, I see one thing I challenge myself to do constantly is to not become content. And I see this as quite a, a, a small act of rebellion. Another, which I would say, especially if you're working in this field or working in the environmental field or with social issues is to not, uh, I don't know what you, whether you would want to call it a, a crust or a scab or a, or a thick outer layer, which makes you, make you, lo makes you lose your vulnerability to interacting with new people and new topics and new ways of doing things. I think when you're involved in it over a number of years, over time, you have to fight to tell yourself that, okay, you don't know everything and you need to constantly keep learning and you might need to change your approach. And there's gonna be people 
older than you. There's going to be a lot of people younger than you who might do things in a very different way. And you have to be ready to, to welcome them and work with them as well. So to make sure that you don't uh, put this border or box around yourself as you're going on. So that's, that's uh, something we need to do, something that becomes very difficult to do, especially when we become adults and we think we're developed into this fixed personality, which we'll keep. We need to remain malleable and, and flexible. And, and so I, I hope I can continue to challenge myself to do that as well. Many thanks to Peter and Logan, and thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Thank Logan. you very much, Sandra. It was great. Thanks, and stay tuned with us for our next episode. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.